a small holder dedicated to spreading regenerative agriculture uh, as one uh, answer to the climate crisis, and she's training as a craniosacral therapist. Uh, she teaches uh, shamanic dreaming in her latest project endeavors to facilitate conscious evolution as the next evolutionary step. Uh, now, she has been writing about uh, women warriors, and uh, she has a series out about Boudica. She was the first one she's written about. And um, uh, she has not called in yet, uh, unfortunately. So I'm going to take one more uh, shot at giving her just a little bit more time, and uh, I'm going to play for you. Uh, something you haven't heard in a while, or maybe if you're new to the show, you haven't heard at all. Uh, you may or may not know uh, that I was in the documentary film, Femme, uh, Women Healing the World. It was a film uh, by Wonderland Entertainment, and um, it was uh, produced in part by the actress Sharon Stone. And uh, I had the great pleasure of uh, being one of the first uh, talking heads in the documentary, uh, actually talking about goddess. And uh, I'll share my two outtakes uh, from Sam with you right now uh, as we wait for Amanda uh, to hopefully call in. All right, here's the first. Um, well, I, I think we, we have to really give ourselves permission to rethink everything. Uh, we have to rethink our religion. We have to rethink our politics. You know, very long ago, uh, you know, things shifted away from the idea of, uh, of us valuing nature. And let's face it, you know, goddess is nature. And as a result of us uh, being told that uh, nature is evil, uh, you know, women and their bodies and sexuality, that's all become a taboo subject uh, rather than something sacred like it used to be. Um, we have to rethink that. Um, we have to, you know, rethink what we value in the world. Uh, are we going to value a big bank account? Uh, or are we going to value what we contribute to society, how we are in service to each other? And I think, you know, with patriarchy and, um, and capitalism, it's all about competition. And that means there has to be winners and losers. But if we look for ways to collaborate, collaborate, if we look for ways to be in partnership with one another, whether it's your friend or whether it's uh, you know, a corporation or whether it's another country, uh, the world would be a much more uplifted and evolved place less likely to end in war, less likely to end in, um, you know, one, uh, you know, country or corporation, you know, being dominated by another and uh, the suffering that results from that. Uh, we, we've seen so much militarism, colonialism, uh, you know, all of these isms, the, you know, the sexism, the homophobia, you know, all of these different things that, um, you know, that, that start with religion and move through politics, move through traditions, move through society, and, and shape how we do things. We have to have the courage to shed light on um, how this all began, how uh, what was normal got turned on its head, and sort of right things 
so that, you know, we're, we're at a place of balance. You know, it used to be the ancient Egyptians talked to us about, um, you know, they were, they were so afraid of things being out of balance because once things went out of balance, we would have chaos. Well, the world is out of balance. It started with a gender imbalance where it was the masculine over the feminine, and we just had an imbalance, uh, you know, throughout history, whether it be one, you know, one country and power over another or the rich over the poor or whites dominating blacks. There's always this dominator model where, uh, you know, someone's always trying to climb on somebody else's shoulders to get ahead. Well, we need to think more of, about level playing fields. We need to think more about an egalitarian society where there's equality, where there's justice. Um, where, where there's truth, where there's freedom, and actually, the you know there are goddesses in their mythology that help us lead the way, that provide a template for us to um, embrace these sort of ideals in society. So that was an outtake uh, from Sam Women Healing the World. Uh, that got left on the cutting room floor. <laughs> Uh, while you were listening to that, I did check my email, and Manda is trying to get through. So uh, while we give her just a little bit more time here, I'm going to let you uh, listen to uh, the second outtake. And uh, hopefully when this is over, uh, Amanda will either be on the air with me or we will have rescheduled. Uh, so just give us a little bit more of your patience. Um, we'll be right back after this outtake, and I will let you know what's going on. Well, yeah, I've had a one-sided view of the divine. And the reason we've had a one-sided view of the divine is because the myths that uh, our society lives by are the myths that only speak about a male god, when, in fact, a goddess has been around for 30, 30 or 40,000 years. Uh, we can look to the artifacts. We can look to the archaeological sites. We can look to the textiles. We can look to the myths. But, you know, because religion is about power and politics, uh, the sacred feminine has sort of been swept beneath the sands of time. And uh, the mythology of goddess uh, has been uh, obscured purposefully uh, because this is all about um, uh, uplifting uh, the patriarchy as opposed to um, having a balanced society where you have the attributes of the feminine and the masculine uh, in control in society. So when you consider that uh, one person's myth is another person's religion, uh, and, and when that myth is um, dominated by a male guide, well, then you have male leadership uh, that, that predominates in society. So as a result, women have been subjugated and goddesses uh, become our role models, they become our archetypes. So when we only have a male god that, that is at the center of society, well that sets the male gender up to be the leader of the society and, and that then um, subjugates women to sort of a second class supporting role rather than a partnership, rather than uh, an equal role where they are uh, in a sense, um, you know, looking over humankind together, or men and women, or uh, leading and ruling together. 
Well, that was uh, the second uh, outtake that I had from Sam, uh, Women Healing the World. And um, our uh, our little diversion there paid off. Uh, we do have Amanda Scott uh, with us on the line. I'm going to unmute her now and say hello. Uh, hi, Amanda. Uh, thank you for calling Ooh. in. Yes. Can you hear me? Amanda, yes. Yes, can I, can, I can hear you. Yes. Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. Yes. Thank you. Okay, so we didn't really get a chance to talk before the show started. Uh, that's when I usually do a little bit of housekeeping. So let me just explain, um, you know, before we proceed, that I am on a satellite phone because I live up in a rural mountain area. Uh, so when we speak to each other, it would be best. Uh, we have to both be real conscious uh, to not get excited and jump in. Uh, we have to let the other finish a sentence before we, um, before we talk, okay? Uh, just so that we don't have that awkward talking over each other. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I think it seems like there's also something of a lag, so we just need to give each other a, a second or so space at the end of a sentence. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So um, I've already introduced you to the audience uh, while we were waiting for you to call in. Uh, I've told them about uh, the wonderful success you've had with your novels and uh, and your social justice activism now. Uh, so they're aware of all of that. So um, we can just sort of jump right in with the uh, with our talk about warrior, uh, you know, women warriors through time. Um, so. So I guess let's just start at the beginning. Uh, you went from uh, from veterinarian uh, to uh, to novelist, um, but what made you choose uh, women warriors uh, and Boudica in particular? Um, you know uh, where you began. I so it comes from my spiritual path is shamanic, which in Britain means going back to the Druidic times. That was the last shamanic culture in our land that we know of. Um, and so I was writing crime novels because I was a vet. As you said, I was a veterinary, we would call it anesthetist, you would call it anesthesiologist at Cambridge University. And I knew that I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I didn't know what else to do. So I started writing crime novels because they were easy and I didn't have to do much research, basically. But there came a point in my spiritual practice, there was a particular event where my dog, I had a hunting dog at the time, and she caught a hare, and hares are sacred to the old gods of this land. And I didn't have any problem with her catching hares. You know, basically, she caught some, she didn't catch others, but this one was lactating. It was a mother, and it had a young. And I had been thinking about what to write for the next book when she went off, and I, I could have stopped her, and I didn't. And so it felt to me that the, the young, the death of the young, because I looked for them, but I was on Newmarket Heath, which is racing country, and the grass was you know, knee-high, and there was several hundred acres of it, and I did not find the young. So that felt very bad. And my experience is that the gods will whisper, and then they will speak, and then they will shout, and if they get to the point where they're shouting at you, you're going to wish you'd listened sooner. So... I went off and did a vision quest, which is obviously a technique that we learned from the first peoples of the Americas, but I'm sure that it obtains in every shamanic culture. And I sat under the tree in the local forest, and my question was, what do you want of me? And the answer 
quite really very clearly was to write the story of our shamanic past. And I had already committed to doing that in a ceremony several years before, but always when I was a good enough writer. That was my key, and that was always several books down the line than where I am now. But uh, at that night under the tree, it was really obvious that I needed to do this. So, um, which was sad, because I'd gotten advance from my publisher for writing a crime novel. And they were not happy at the idea that I wanted to change to something completely different. But I had a very good agent, and by a succession of, of really quite unlikely events all tied together, which, which led me to believe that I was getting a lot of help, um, we got a contract from a completely different publisher that let me give up the day job and gave me someone who really understood. The books are all called Spudica Dreaming the Something, Dreaming the Eagle, Dreaming the Bull, Dreaming the Hound, Dreaming the Serpent Spear. And my practice was that I dreamed my way into these, that, that particularly the first book, everything, every act of dreaming in the book, I had either done or seen done. And I had an editor who understood that. So I would sit with the fire in the evenings and ask the questions that I needed to ask, and the next day I would write it. And then she was a very proactive editor, which doesn't really happen anymore, and she helped me to shape the book into something that people would read. Interesting, interesting. So could you say those titles uh, more slowly, the different um, – uh, and, yeah. and, and, and are they a, are they a trilogy, or what are no, they? How, uh, you, but you have four. Yes. We first of, we, we, in the beginning, I suggested them as three, and halfway through the second book, we realized that there were four. So um, we split that book into two. So Dreaming the Eagle is the first one. Dreaming the Bull is the second one. Dreaming the Hound is the third one, and Dreaming the Serpent Spear is the fourth one. And by the time you get to the fourth one, you'll understand why the title is what it is. And I am currently writing Dreaming the Wounded Bear as a, a kind of Arthurian, you know, several generations down the line. But I, I led to that when I set up the first book. Okay. So um, uh, now Boudica, um, it was, you know, why her, though? I, I mean, uh, how, you know, when did you learn you had an affinity for her? Was it in the dream quest? Um, it was more that she, if I had gone to my publishers, publishers and said that I wanted to write about the spirituality of what they call the late pre-Roman Iron Age, I would still be a vet. But Boudicca was something <laughs> that everyone in Britain knows because we're all taught the history of Roman Britain and that this woman was the first woman to lead the revolt against Rome. She was, she was, she was a woman, and she led the revolt against Rome um, in, in 63 AD. So everybody knows that she exists. They don't know a huge amount about her, but they've heard the name. And what I was able to say was nobody yet has ever written her story from the British perspective, because everybody had written it from the Roman perspective, because the Romans wrote the histories, so it was easy to go and just read stuff in Tacitus or Suetonus and kind of turn it into a novel. And I said, I want to know who we were before the Romans came. That's the point. So I need to go back into this woman's life and, and find that out. And because that sounded, and, and because I'd got really quite a long synopsis, um, I made myself write a, a, a really big synopsis to prove that there was enough to write about and that I could do it because I was a crime novelist up till then. I had to prove that I could change. Then 
then they they went for that. And, and by the time we sold the series, I had the first three chapters, so they could see how it was shaping up. Lovely, lovely. So, um, so is there an awful lot out there uh, on Boudica, or did you have to, you know, take some creative license? Um, no, there's a lot of creative did, license. How did you? Yeah, uh, speak to that a bit. So, so the the actual stuff that we have written is two paragraphs in Tacitus about her specifically, and then something by a guy who's either called, it doesn't matter, he was three centuries later and he was writing, he probably had read Tacitus and then he reframed it. There's nothing new in Diocassius. Um, so there's a, quite a lot about the actual revolt because Tacitus' father-in-law was one of the Roman commanders in Britannia at the time. There's, but beyond that, there's, there's the two, two or three paragraphs that mention her, and beyond that, there is nothing. But we have a lot of archaeological evidence because Tacitus tells us, for instance, that the Boudican armies burned the three main Roman cities, which were Colchester, which they called Camelodunum, Londinium, and Verulamium, which we call St. Albans, were all burned to the ground. And archaeologically, we find that there is a layer of ash in each of these cities that we can date to the same time period. So if we didn't have Tacitus, we would just think there was a fire. But because we have Tacitus and we know about the revolt, then we can link these two together. So it gives us credibility of the fact that Tacitus was giving us some degree of accuracy. Beyond that, there's a lot of... Because I wanted to know about the pre-Roman times, then I had to go... And, and the British left no written records. We, we know that they could write Greek and Roman, and it's possible they were writing also in their own language, but we don't have anything left from that. But there's a lot of um, archaeological reenactment being done, where archaeologists... I went and studied with a guy who makes Bronze Age swords, for instance, which was really good fun. And I discovered they had amazing, glorious, gorgeous metalwork. And I went to the British Museum, and I spoke to the guy who was in charge of the British... Um, exhibit of that era and he said he just had somebody come from China who was an expert in ancient Chinese metalwork, goldwork, silverwork, jewellery basically, and which was thought to be the most advanced in the world and this guy from China looked at everything that had been found there was a thing called the Mildenhall Hoard which was found during the war actually and, and was dated around the time of the Boudican Revolt, someone had just buried a bunch of precious metal and it's torques and which are kind of necklaces and things. And this guy looked at all his work and he said, there is nothing to match this in, in the world for 1,700 years after this in terms of the workmanship and the quality of the work that's gone into it. So we're able to infer quite a lot from that. There's a living archaeology site at a place in Hampshire, the Butzer Iron Age Farm, and they set up, they built roundhouses until they could build one that didn't fall down. They farmed until they could farm the quality and the quantity of grain that we know was produced in the Iron Age, and then they worked out how they must have done it. So we know things like the southeast of England was more productive than anywhere else in the Roman Empire until the Romans arrived and began to take apart the structures that were producing that. But we also know that in the production of that level of productivity of grain, sorry, my dog is just writing, um, it would have taken every able-bodied individual over the age of about five would have been working in the fields 
during the harvest and the growing season. And so the stories that we were told when I was a schoolgirl, which was that we were a warrior culture and we spent our whole lives fighting tribe fighting tribe and that we needed the nice, kind, peaceful Romans to come and keep peace between us was absolute nonsense because we could not possibly have been that and produced the levels of grain that we produced because if your warriors, which we know were men and women at that time, were busy fighting each other, then they weren't in the fields. They were either defending the fields or they were assaulting the other fields. And, and that's a zero-sum game, and you end up with a very depleted population very quickly if you do that. So I looked around the world at other warrior cultures, particularly the First Peoples of the Americas, and we have a model there where you do have a warrior culture, but they're not killing each other. It's very stylized. It's more like single combat, and we know that the Celts were very keen on single combat. So I began to develop a theory of a culture that that is a warrior culture, we know that, but is probably based on very stylized single combat fighting rather than our warriors attack your warriors, and where the rest of the time they're incredibly productive in terms of not just their agricultural output, but their artistic output. They had, they had the beautiful metalwork that I saw in the British Museum. They had fantastic harness mounts on their horses, and I went and worked with a guy who makes his own harness and drives his own horse in the modern day. And Because and I'd gone on to, in those days, there were just um, Usenet lists, and I'd gone on to the Usenet archaeology list and said, okay, guys, you know, harness mounts, I need to know what they were used for. And two professors of archaeology went, they were mounted on harness, little girl. And I thought, okay, I have three postgraduate degrees, and actually I had worked that one out. I want to know how they were mounted on the harness, exactly what they were used for. And they just went, we don't know. And this guy contacted me and he said, well, horses are the same shape they've always been. A plow is basically a plow. A cart is a cart. Let's work it out. So I went with the book of what the harness mounts looked like, and we worked out how you could fit them on the harness. Um, and, and it seemed that nobody had actually done that, which is kind of strange. So, um, and they were beautiful, and they'd taken hours and hours and hours of some goldsmith or bronzesmith working to do that. And you're not doing that if you're being attacked by neighboring tribes. So we ended up with a model of a much more peaceable culture than we had been sold when I was a child. Um, that was basically annihilated well, by the Romans. Committed genocide when they came here. Well, and, and I guess, you know, the other thing that uh, I think is, is I'm curious about, and, and, and thank you for that uh uh, dispelling the disinformation because, you know, there's so many academics out there that, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, want to just say, you know, we've always been a, a, a warring people. And, uh, I, I mean, we find yeah. that, um, you know, within, within uh uh, you know, feminists who uh, who do research. You know, you know, they want to just say, you know, there there was never, uh, you know, very few egalitarian cultures, very few matriarchies, these sorts of things. Where, uh, you know, they want us to just believe that we were always uh, killing each other. You know, rather than yeah. working together and yeah. having these these flourishing mm-hmm. societies. So, um, so I get that. So, so we know the, um, you know the, or, or you're, you're calling them, uh, I, I guess, pre-British or pre-British. I mean, is, is that the, is that the proper term though? Um, would it be the indigenous people of of the island of Britain? I mean, what would they well, really be yeah. called? 
Yeah, because the archaeologists call them the late pre-Roman Iron Age, and I think that's just so insulting. It's defining everything by the Romans, because the Romans are the model for the Victorians, and the Victorians kind of started modern archaeology. So I call them, I call them British tribes, or tribal Britons, because okay. they had, it wasn't okay. that we were a politically unified grouping then, but we lived on the island of Britain. So yeah. I think that would be it. And, okay. and they were fairly indigenous. It's pro- probable that there were waves of incomers and that the ones that we have described, the kind of tall, red-headed ones, were probably not the original people. There were probably a smaller, darker-haired people that were kind of swept west into Wales by an incursion, possibly, probably from the Germanies or the Saxon lands, or at least from further east. Um, but that it's Okay. Well, so my other question was, um, you know, uh, I I know I I would assume that, uh, you know, a lot of my listeners, uh, you know, have probably seen documentaries on Boudica and, uh, you know, probably admire her as well. Uh, But I'm wondering, what was the culture like that a woman could have rallied and led an army? Um, I mean, do you think it's that's an exaggeration, or was the mindset different then that uh, a woman could have been a leader as easily as a man? Um, well, you know, I so we've got what I believe, and we've got what we know. So we have five names of tribal leaders at the time of the Roman invasion, and of those five names, two are women. One is Boudica, and one is a woman called Cartimandua who led the Brigantes. And Cartimandua was pro-Roman. And so at the point when her people rose up and rebelled against her and against Rome, the Romans sent in the Ninth Legion to get her out, and they apparently took her to Gaul, which was under France, which was under Roman control at that point, and, and basically gave her a pension and some land and left her to get on with it. So two out of five is you know, it's pretty much 50% of the leaders that we know are women. Um, and beyond that, we have what we know of a culture. I used to do battle reenactment, and my belief is you do not, at the point when you are a person who is brought up in a warrior culture, you understand how to hold your weapons. Fighting is something that you basically do for fun. You don't follow somebody into battle who isn't the best that you can find, because the, your life depends on them making good decisions, basically. Um, I'm not convinced that we had a kind of leadership structure in the way that Rome did, because we definitely didn't have things like a marriage structure in the way that Rome did. But she was definitely somebody whose name became known enough to Agricola, who was Tacitus' father-in-law that he passed it on. By the way, I don't think Boudica is a name. I think it's a title, because it means she who brings victory. And Ah. if anything that we've told about her is right, then she definitely did bring victory. So... It's a title that she has earned, and it's a title that exists. So I think that's quite a good link to the idea that women could be doing this. The other thing that we have comes out of the Celtic, the Irish uh, sagas that came from slightly later, or they came down to us from slightly later, the 2nd and 3rd century. But in those sagas, um, at the point when a man called Cúchalán wants to learn how to be the best warrior that he can be. He goes to a warrior school led by a woman called Skaha, 
who who runs the best warrior school in Ireland, and she trains him how to be the best warrior that he can be. And nowhere in the sagas does it suggest that this was unusual, or that you know it was very strange that this warrior school was led by a woman. It's just what it was. Um, and so the final okay. kind of leg of my stool is that when I did battle reenactments, which is, and I was in a dark age group, so I was dressed in more or less what people would have been dressed in in Boudican times, and my experience was that you're on a battlefield with your weapons. What makes a difference is whether you believe you can win or not. That if you have, it doesn't, unless you've got a very, very big man with a much longer reach, that doesn't make much difference. And we were not marching into battle. It wasn't that you had to pick up a pack that weighed 100 kilos and march all day with it, because that does make a difference. Men are much better at that than women. So the men in the Roman army had to be men because they were carrying a very heavy pack for very long distances. But if you are riding your ponies into battle, leaving them at the back, and then just forming a line, and your mode of battle is not line fighting in the way that the Romans did, but much more free fighting. Our swords were long swords. They were the length of a forearm or longer, probably at twice the length of a forearm. Roman swords were the gladius, which was basically an extended chisel. And they fought in a line with square-edged shields, and they were taught to stand shoulder to shoulder and not move. And you don't attack. Then you don't try to stab the person coming straight at you. You stab under the armpit of the guy who is assaulting the person on your right. It's much easier to describe this if you've got a video. But you go for the weak spot of the person on your right, which protects the person on, on your right, assuming that the person on your left is doing the same for you. And that takes many, 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 many hours of drilling because all of your reflexes, all of your sympathetic protect system is going to go, the guy's screaming, running at me with a battle axe or a sword, I have to kill him. And you have to ignore him or her and go for the person that you can actually kill with your very short sword. That method of fighting takes many hours of drilling and it takes building the bonds whereby you trust the person on your left with your right, with your life and the person on your right trusts you with your life, and you all know that you can trust each other. Whereas we were, because we were a warrior culture based on single combat, we had round shields and long swords that need a lot of space to wield. Therefore, you're not fighting in a line. You're fighting much more a series of single combat than one big line fight, which is why we lost the final the final battle of the of the revolt. But in that case, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. What matters is if you have a lot of belief in yourself. Because my experience is, you know within this first clash of a fight who's going to win, unless you come up against someone who has a similar level of self-belief as you, and then it actually becomes interesting. But other than that, I, I don't think I had a single fight on a single battlefield that I didn't know I could win. And and did win. Interesting. You just know it. But it's psychic. It's energetic. It's interesting. Yeah. So I see no reason why women could not be warriors, and there were, we also know that there were women druids. And if you're the warriors and the druids who are the two highest levels within your caste system, then women can be anything else too, I would say. Right. <clears throat> well, and, and I think most of the time we see these documentaries on Boudicca, um, you know, they look like a terribly unorganized horde. Um, yeah. You know, uh, running, running like madmen or mad women at these, you know, this uh, very disciplined Roman army. Um, you know, and not even like guerrilla fighters. You know, just sort of haphazard. 
Um, and uh, it, from what you just said, it, it sort of sounds like that's, uh, you know, that's misinformation as well. Yeah, because the people, first of all, history is written by the winners, so we have the history from Rome. And then until very recently, most white Western historians and archaeologists considered themselves the natural inheritors of Rome. They were people, my, my editor used to say, the world is divided into Celts and Romans, or Romans and Britons. And we had a bunch of people in the publishing house who were definitely Romans, and we were the dreamers and the Britons, and we just had to you know, work out how to get past them what we needed to get past them. And so historians and archaeologists were definitely Romans, and they think about things in a Roman way. And, and so the challenge was that, was to think about things not in a Roman way, to think about things. I read something once about a Chinese academic who was speaking to an American academic, and he said, the thing about you is you think in terms of straight lines and square houses, and we think in circles, and it's completely different. And I had to work out what does thinking in circles feel like. And, and I think a lot of the way that the British forces during the revolt, how, how we won, was that we were very, very good guerrilla fighters and that the Roman army was desperately vulnerable when it was on the march, which was pretty much every day. You had a legion, which is 5,000 men, spread out over 20 miles. Because the people, we know that they, they built their army, their, their night camps 20 miles apart. And they would be such that the people, the first guys out would leave in the morning and they would march 20 miles and they would be building the next camp while the last people were still dismantling the camp from the night before. And everybody had their job. Wow. And it was very, very organized. It was incredibly left brain. It was very, I would say, you know, these people are a long way down the spectrum. Everything has to be very organized. And... And so you've got 5,000 men spread out over 20 miles. That's a lot of gaps. And if you have to go through a forest, it's not hard to pick off the people at the back. And the people marching, you know, a couple of hundred meters in front of them do not know they've gone. And and so you know, we destroyed the ninth pretty much. We just we kept the second legion in in its. Sorry, my dog is patting on the floor. We kept the second legion under siege down in Devon. We pretty much had destroyed the 14th and the 20th. It's only when we made the mistake of being lured into a line fight that we actually lost. So I think we were very oh. good guerrillas. It was just that last battle that was the mistake. <clears throat> and it, it's unfortunate. Um, you know, I, I often wonder what you know how life would have been different if Cleopatra and Antony had won at the Battle of Actium. You know, how yes. would life be different if Boudicca's army, you know, had won yes. uh, that that oh, very totally last different. battle? Yeah, because yeah. I think so. I, I I have thought about this quite a lot. Suppose they'd won that last battle, then the Roman forces in Britain would have been annihilated and gone. And that would have meant that the Druidic hegemony that had a, a, a been pertained before the Roman invasion would have been restored. So Britain would have been a Druidic island. Northern Gaul would then have, Northern Gaul rose up in revolt five years after the British revolt, even though the British lost. And it was a Druid-led revolt. So I think that the Gaulish revolt would have had at least more chance of surviving. At the same time, Nero, who ordered the Brit the British, the rebellion arose because the Romans were giving one last throw of the dice. So Tonius Paulinus was told to subdue Britain or die in the attempt. If he had died in the attempt, Nero would have been incredibly vulnerable. And I think it's likely that Seneca, who was his um, 
main support at that point and was a very intelligent man. I don't like Seneca, but he was a very, as Romans go, he was a, he was a thoughtful, intelligent Roman. I think he might well have ended up being emperor. Had he been emperor and had they lost Britain and then Gaul, I think, and they'd already lost the Germanies because they'd sent um, legions, Varus had lost the legions to the east of the Rhine. So then the Roman Empire begins to shrink. If the Roman Empire shrinks, then it has no purchase to pick up a minor Middle Eastern goat herd's religion and turn it into the religion of the Roman state in order to subdue people, which is what they did with Christianity. They picked up something that basically nobody else had ever heard of, and they turned it into their religion because they could, because basically what it said was give to you know, render unto Rome that which is Roman. They, they were able to bend it to become a very essentially capitalist, Roman vehicle for subduing the populations at the borders of their empire. But they wouldn't have had an empire by then. So even if they had wanted to pick up this random small religion, it wouldn't have spread very far. So we have a world where Druidry and the warrior cultures of Britain and Gaul are reinstalled, where Christianity probably never takes off because Paul just goes wandering around the western Mediterranean, eastern Mediterranean, and then just dies and nothing happens. And where even if there are the influxes of the Northmen and the Saxons towards Britain 400 years later, we don't have a population that has lost its warrior culture, which we had because Romans subdued all warrior culture. But if we have a Druidic right. warrior culture, Britain and Gaul, throughout the first millennium, then we probably don't have a Nor Norse invasion. We don't have the Vikings. We certainly don't then have the Normans coming in 1066 because they don't exist, because they are basically Vikings who have taken over in France. And they wouldn't have because there's a Druidic hegemony in, in Gaul and France. So you end up with a much more Earth-based culture in most of Western Europe that is not imperial, and doesn't have Christianity behind it, turning it into a, a sadomasochistic cult. And then there's no invasion of the Americas at all, because there's no need. So the indigenous first people of the Americas stay, stay in, in they, they have their nation. And you end up with a much more Earth-focused, Earth-based, probably smaller, but living in context with the Earth in a way that we need to yeah. learn urgently, I think. And I don't yes, think it's a I agree. but it's a very, very different world. And the question you have to ask them is, why yeah. did that not So, yeah. Go, go ahead. Why? My... Go, go ahead, Amanda. The question you have to ask is... But the question is, why Why did that not happen? Because if, one, if you follow the old gods, which I do, then the new god that arose as a result of the fact that the, the Buddha lost that last battle is the god of blood and thunder, or it's the god of blood and sacrifice, or blood and pain and judgment, and suppression of women for 2,000 years, and suppression of anybody who's not white. And it's having a bit of a final death throw at the moment, I think. And a, I think it, it casts a very different light on what I imagine to be the old god versus the new god. And the old gods are the gods of connection, and the new god is the god of dissociation. And if we can reconnect, can we bring that balance back? I don't know the answer to this, 
because I still don't fully understand why the new god won over the old god, except that it becomes very powerful if you feed it enough blood. And I would like that not to happen second time around. Well, that's all. Uh, that, that's interesting. Uh, truly, truly, I, I enjoyed hearing your uh, your your theories on that, and uh, it makes total sense to me as well. Um, <clears throat> but before we run out of time here, because we've already uh, gotten pretty far, and I want to get to Joan of Arc also. Uh, but I want to I want you to explain why you you know what you believe uh, Boudicca tells us about ourselves. You know why is she aside from what you've already alluded to, you know, I mean, had her people stayed in charge as opposed to Rome, which ended up, you know, shoving Christianity down our throats, um, you know, what is it uh, we can learn from Boudicca? Why is she, uh, why is she or should she still be relevant to us today? Because I think she's the icon of a time when there was genuine egalitarianism between men and women. I think that's really important. It wasn't that they did the same things. It was that the person who was best at whatever the thing was could do it regardless of gender. And, I th- and that gives men and women a huge amount of freedom. She was also an icon of a time when the, the whole Roman idea of uh, a man owns a woman. You know, ownership of a woman passes from her father to her husband. Was it was a Greek idea that passed to Rome, and th- th- we have a wonderful um, quote from quite late in the Roman era, it was in the 400s, where um, one of the Roman empresses was castigating uh, a, a noble-born British woman for what she called her loose morals, and the British woman said, "I'll get to see if I can get this right." We consort openly with the best of men. You allow yourselves to be debauched in secret by the vilest. And so even 400 years after the Roman invasion, the concept of one man, one woman, little little domestic you know, haven, had not taken on. And it certainly didn't take on at a time when we were living in tribes. You're living in a roundhouse with you know, the entire tribe of, sort of between 80 and 150 people living in a roundhouse. And you sleep with who you feel like sleeping with. And I don't think that heterosexuality was particularly normative at the time. There's no evidence that it was. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that it wasn't. And it doesn't matter who fathered the children. The whole concept of monogamy and patriarchy is based on a man being able to believe that he's leaving his worldly goods to his son. And if you're not doing that, if everything is held in common by the tribe, then you don't need this bizarre idea of monogamy and, you know, one man, one woman. It's bonkers. So I think that also. And the concept of a tribe where everything is held in common by the tribe, you know, we have basically, we are the end result of Roman thinking, of of the capitalist concept where everything has a price and nothing has a value, where taxation is something that drives value up to the top and where everything else is based on grinding the people at the bottom, and we need to change that. You know, we can do it. We could yeah. find a way. But we live in a world where eight men, eight white men, own more value than 50% of the rest of the world, and that is not sustainable. Even if we were not on the verge of climate crisis and the sixth mass extinction, that is not sustainable. And there's a lot more of us than there are of them. We just give them the power to do this, and it's time we stop. Yeah. So I think... You know, and she rose up in revolt against an army that was massively more 
powerful by Roman terms than hers, but she very nearly won. So fighting on, the last thing I was saying, yeah. learning to fight on own terms is really crucial in this. And I don't think we, I think we've got a window yeah. where we could do this, not a huge window. Agreed, agreed. I, I really do. And, and like you said, you know, with the tribes, I mean, it was every, the tribe owned everything. It, it's more the model of socialism or, or democratic socialism. Uh, I'm actually going to be having a, sh- uh, a guest on the show in a few weeks that's going to talk about the connection between Christianity and um, uh, capitalism versus uh, socialism and, uh, and, and, and neo-paganism. Um, but just quickly, uh, so that we have a little bit of time for Joan of Arc. Um, uh, what we see about how Boudicca and her daughters died, uh, is that accurate, or what do, we, what do we know about their deaths? We don't, we, we don't know anything about her daughter's deaths. Those are not recorded. Um, her death, it's different. Tacitus has her poison herself, and Diocassius has her cut her own throat. I think basically both of them were Roman men who wrote the ways that it was acceptable for a Roman noble woman to kill herself and at the point when she was facing defeat. I think both of these are extremely unlikely. This was a warrior woman who was not a Roman matron. You know, she, her, her way of thinking will have been entirely different. But given that I believe that, we have absolutely no knowledge. I imagine she died on the battlefield because if she hadn't... Yeah we would have heard something about her actions afterwards. She wasn't somebody who was going to give up. But we believe, and I see no reason to believe it's untrue, that 100,000 people, men and women, died in that last battle. And I would be very surprised if she was not one of them, because she will have been leading from the front. That's what you do. So right, right. I, I guess she died then, but we don't know where the battlefield is exactly, and we have no idea what happened. She may have been mortally wounded on the battlefield and that maybe her followers got her off. Certainly that's what I write in the book. But we don't know that. Okay. Um, all right, so Joan of Arc. Um, so she's uh, 1,400 years later. There's lots of books about her, too. Um, as, you know, especially, I, I, I gather you kind of have a, a anti-Christian bent, uh, as do <laughs> I. Uh, what made you? What made you write about her? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I, you're right. I do have an anti-Christian bent. Um, really, what I was so I wrote the Boudicca books, and then I wrote a series of Roman spy thrillers, which started with the Great Fire of Rome, which actually during which I think I found the historical basis for Christ, which was a very exciting moment in a writing writing life. I have to say, we can talk about that some other time because the history is actually very interesting. But while I was doing that, I came across an article in a newspaper in Britain about a Ukrainian surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, who specialized in building remodeling faces on skulls. Nowadays you do it with computers. This was 2003 and you had to do it by hand. And he had been invited into France to remodel the face of St. Bernard, St. Bernard, because they had skull and they wanted to know what he looked like. And while he was there, they kind of handed him a big box of bones that they had from uh, a place called Clary saint andre where the king of France, King Louis XI, was buried. And Louis was the son of the man that the woman we know of as Joan of Arc put on the throne. And so 
And, and it was a great honour to be buried with the king. So there was a collection of the king, his wife, and five knights. And they said, you know, first of all, can you sort them out? And second, can you tell us who they are? And, and so it was easy to sort out the king and his wife, because we have a lot of portraits of the king, and they were very good at painting people accurately. And we know that his wife was a very small woman, very small build, and she died in her early 30s in childbirth. So sorting those two out is easy. Then you have five knights who have been buried with the king, so it's a huge honour. And four of them were readily identified, because we have records of, you know, X was buried with the king. But then there's this fifth one, and he laid out all the bones, and he said, this was a woman. She died in her late 50s or early 60s, and she had been trained to be a knight from a very early age, because if you're carrying 60 pounds of plate armor before your growth plate skews, it changes your skeletal structure. And he said, this was Marguerite de Valois, and this was Joan of Arc. And they closed the tomb, and they threw him out of France, and they revoked his visa so he could never get back in. And I wrote to my editor, I still have my wonderful editor from Budapest, and I said, this is my story. I am writing this, because this is really interesting. Do not let anybody else touch this. And she wrote back, going, you know I don't have the power to stop them, don't you? And going, no, no, you do, just don't let it happen. And miraculously enough, I got to 2012, finished the Roman series, and nobody else had written about this. And because Marguerite de Valois was the illegitimate daughter of King Charles V of France, who was the king who fought against Henry II of England at Agincourt. He didn't actually fight at Agincourt, but it was the time of the Hundred Years' War of Agincourt and Crecy and all of those things. He was that king. And he had a number of allegedly legitimate children, uh, but then his wife had gone over to the other side and in the Civil War. And um, they gave him a Burgundian woman, Burgundy was on the other side too, to be his mistress, and, and who was supposed obviously to be a spy, but they fell deeply in love. He bore him this one daughter. And the thing about that time was that when the king had children, they were farmed out to other places to be raised, largely because it was taken. But the illegitimate ones weren't. And so this daughter stayed with the king, and he was a king. He, his main interest was in tournaments, and he was a brilliant, brilliant knight. And we, what we know of Joan of Arc, if you actually look at the history, as opposed to the rubbish that is written about her afterwards, she was a brilliant warrior, and she had the best tactical abilities of anybody of her time, largely because the really good people had all died at Agincourt or, or been imprisoned. But given the time when she was, she was the best tactician of France, and she basically set the grounds for them winning the Hundred Years' War. So we know all this about her, and then there's all this disinformation that comes on top. So I really wanted to look at it. made a lot of sense. It makes, it's the only thing that makes sense, is that she was the daughter of the King of France, who was raised by him, because it, you know, in the end they burned her for wearing men's clothes. You didn't get to turn your daughter into a knight. It, you have to have been someone who could tell the bishops to get lost in order to do that. And the only person with the power to do something that the church considered so unacceptable was the king. Also, the only person, frankly, with the skill to train someone that well, because no one else was going to train a girl, was the king. He was very, he was, he was crazy in many ways. Um, he had periods where he thought he was a footman called George, made of glass. Um, and and there was a lot of problems because he would go into these psychotic episodes and basically the person who had been speaking to him last 
before he went into his psychotic episode, got to rule Francis and the person who got to him first when he came out. Um, lots of issues, but he was a brilliant knight. And so I think he taught his daughter. And I think it was a fantastic and interesting and glorious story. And and nobody else had talked about it. So it was worth going into a Christian era, which I did find very difficult. Um, because and, and all the stuff written about her, she wasn't a pious person at all. She She did not believe she was hearing the voice of God. She was hearing the voice of her father in heaven, which is a different thing if your father is the king. And has died. Hmm. Interesting. So she. So, yeah, so, so the, the visions. So, so the visions weren't of God. The voices she was hearing, she believed, were from her father, the king. Is I just want to make yeah. sure I understood that. Yes, I don't okay. think she was hearing. Okay. It, what we have, because we have the record of her trial in great detail. But two things to be said. First is that the people who were interviewed thirty years later because we have the second trial, which was exonerating her from heresy. The people interviewed then said that the record of the first trial was inaccurate. However, it is allegedly verbatim, and there are bits of it that read as they probably are. And so what you have is a girl who is being, probably at that age, 21. It's February, and she's being held in a stone room with no glass. She's being chained such that her ankles are being in, are in iron fetters to a very heavy chain that goes over a beam and then down to a log that no man can lift. So she's sleeping like this every night. She goes into a courtroom where 40 men who are the most, um, allegedly, they're the, the, the leaders of the kingdom, are all firing questions at her at once, and all they want to know about is the spiritual agency that drove her. They do not dare to ask her anything about her tactics or her skills in battle, which were exemplary. And she had wiped out the English army pretty much until her own king stopped her from doing it. That's a separate story. And they keep asking her about what she sees and what she hears. And she spends six days going, I don't hear or see anything. And finally, on the sixth day, she says, St. Michael gives me, gives me great comfort. And they leap on it. It's like, it's like sharks on blood in the water. And then they have to stop because the end of the day comes. She goes down that night. And St. Michael was the patron saint of the ruling family of France. And I think she or somebody realizes that that was a very, very silly thing to say because they're going to want to know why is it, St. Michael, you're supposed to be a peasant girl. And so she comes back the next day, and the next day she's talking about St. Catherine and St. Mary. And then they never let up on that because this is how they think they're going to trap her. They keep asking her questions that are designed to be tricked. So they ask her at one point, um, do you believe you are in a state of grace? And this is an absolute trick, because if you say yes, then you are claiming to know the mind of God, and that's heresy, and they can burn you. And if you say no, you are claiming to deny God's grace, and that's heresy, so they can burn you. And what she says is, I don't know if I am in a state of grace, but if I were in a state I would like to be in a state of grace, and I beg that God brings me to that. And the whole court fell about laughing, because these are the 40 most learned men in the country, and they haven't managed to ask her a trick question. And we know that way back, the woman I believe to be her mother, a woman called Odette, um, was similarly questioned by the Burgundians after the old king had died. And she is said to have walked rings around their clerics who were trying to trap her and her daughter was in the room with her at the time. 
So I think this is, you know, this girl knew how to run rings around the clerics. But I think, she, you know, she's very tired. She's very cold. She's held out for a very long time. And, you know, because she was, she was captured in July, and they don't start the trial until February. And the conditions she's being held in, I think, would break any normal human being. And she makes a mistake. And from then on, the rest of the court and the rest of history is that she is having visions and hearing voices of angels. And it's entirely untrue. There is not a single stroke of evidence in fact, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. She was not in any way a pious person. She launched an attack on one of the main Christian feast days when the whole of the rest of the French army said, you can't do this, we're supposed to be praying. And she said, well, I'm going. Is anybody else coming with me? And the only person who went with her was a guy called um, Laillet, who was also famously unpious. And they took their horses and their men and they launched an attack that began the relief of the siege of Orléans. You don't do that if you're a super pious girl who has visions of God and angels. It just doesn't happen. Right. So what, So do you think she was so misrepresented because, well, patriarchy couldn't have such a strong, powerful woman? Uh, I mean, yeah. was it as simple as that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they couldn't, you know, this was a woman who had defeated them in battle. There was a point when she was at her height where the two armies, the French army and the English army, were opposing each other. It was a very hot day. There was allegedly a lot of dust, so they couldn't see. But she rode out in front of the French army, in, within bowshot of the English army, and she challenged them all to single combat. And not a single man, not a single knight of the English army, and all of the big-name knights were there, rode out to fight her, because they were terrified of her by then. And they could not possibly admit that that was the case. So in the end, the record of her trial where they finally convicted her, they convicted the woman who calls herself the maid, oh no, the, who, sorry, the woman, Jeanne, who is in, I can't remember, it's basically who is in league with the fiend that called itself the maid. So they had separated her from the person who actually won the battle. And they had a problem because she was a virgin, and they had many people check that she was a virgin, which in itself I find horrendous. And it was a, a known fact of the time that the devil could not consort with a virgin. She was very nearly raped while in custody because that would have made, you know, that would have then invalidated that, and they would have retrospectively invalidated it, which is one of those interesting concepts that I never quite get my head around. But you know, there were a couple of these in English ones who stopped the rape, but. Um, they, it was so impossible for them to get their head around the idea that a woman could fight, could fight well, and could beat them, that there was a great deal of incentive to change that history. And there was also incentive on the French side, because there was a huge amount of politicking going on. There were a lot of people who did not want her or her supporters to have any sway with the King of France. And, and when she was captured, basically the King dumped her in it. He could have got her back. He could have ransomed her, and he chose not to. Um, and, and it's very likely, it seems, I think, the evidence is that she was betrayed, that she was captured because the French basically turned her over. They, they shut the gates of the place. She had sallied out of a keep, and they, they closed, they raised the drawbridge so she couldn't get back in. So, um, well, it's, it sounds like to me possibly, uh, you know, maybe it was because they thought she would be too popular. You know, they didn't well, want, um, you know, divided loyalties. A lot of people who knew she was the king's daughter. And and at the same time, the king's mother was saying, so, that, so the old king had died. 
his only surviving son had been made king, and the only surviving son's mother was on public record saying he was illegitimate. So you have a guy who is utterly useless on the battlefield, he could not begin to fight, who is quite unpopular, who is definitely not the king's son, and you have a woman who is a brilliant warrior, who is extremely popular, and is definitely the king's daughter. So you yeah, have a lot competition. of If you're on the side of the king, and your your own political future depends on the king staying being the king, to not have this woman around, because the first guy who marries her makes himself the king of France. And right. there were a lot of people queuing up to do that. So I don't think she's now, so, the um, and she certainly didn't show any interest, but, but you know, it, it was the king's supporters did everything they could to undermine her. And and there were obvious reasons so why. So, Amanda, we're, we're not going to have time to get into the special operations executive. Sorry, sorry. Uh, but let me just ask you uh, about Joan of Arc. You have a book out on her as well? Yes. Yes, it's called Into the Fire. It, Enter the fire. Okay. Uh, and know. just one last thing. It What? Sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I, it, uh, I believe it's called Yes, it is. Sorry. It's a long time since I wrote it. It is called Enter the Fire. Sorry. One last thing. Tell me what. Enter the fire. Uh, so yep. the one last thing, uh, so so because we don't have time to go into it right now, but if listeners, you know, want to look into it, just real quickly, what is the special operations executive um, it was the uh, an arm of the British Army during the Second World War in which women fought. It was the only arm of any of the nations in the Second World War in which women actually went into the in, into full battle. But what they did was that they were parachuted behind enemy lines as agents to disrupt the the German forces, um, and and they did so very successfully. Um, so it wasn't just that the special is, operations it, executive was women and men, but it was the only time that women were allowed into combat um, until very modern times in Britain. And so there's a number of very famous women. You might have heard of Odette or Violet Jabot, or um, there was a Muslim woman, um, Inyat Nur Khan. Nur Inyat Khan, sorry. Um, most of them died very, very, very unpleasant deaths at the hands of the Nazis, but a number of them survived the war. And they were unbelievably courageous and, and extraordinarily and skilled have, women. And have you written about them as well? And if you did, what's the title? It's called A Treachery of Spies, and yes, I have. And it, yes, yes. Okay. Um, Amanda, uh, this has been fascinating. Uh, I wish we had more time, but we don't. Um, so I would just encourage listeners to look some of this up themselves, to actually go out there and buy your books. Uh, your website, please tell us. Um, probably the one with all the books on is my name. It's mandascott.co.uk. Um, I have a dreaming site if people are interested in the shamanic dreaming, which is Dreaming Awake. .co.co.uk, and then there's the the current conscious evolution one, which is accidentalgods.life. So there are three. Well, um, Amanda, I sure appreciate you calling in today. Uh, it's been a fascinating interview, and uh, we'll we'll have a chat over email and see if we can do this again. But uh, sorry sure. for all the confusion yes. well, I'm this morning. Uh, the conscious evolution, but it's been a great pleasure, and I apologize for the confusion at the start. 
that's okay. It, it all worked out, and that's what's important. Uh, thank you so very much. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for so, having me on the show. I hope it goes well for the rest of the day. All right, thank you. All right, well, um, I'm sure you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, and just one last thing before we go here, uh, especially for those of you who feel called by the fairy faith, uh, listen closely. Uh, this will be about Joe Carson's book, uh, Celebrate Wildness. Celebrate Wildness has practical instructions on how to make your own fairy ring hinge, how to magically restore any place to its original wild harmony, how to feel the shapes of the earth as if they really are a part of your own body, and even how to initiate yourself into the Ferraferia path. From early Ferraferia member, John Beggs. What a beautiful, inspired, and inspiring book this is. The text is a delight, augmenting, interpreting, and celebrating the drawings that the singer sometimes adds another dimension of understanding to a musical composition. It has the glow, glory, and joy of a masterpiece. Celebrate Wildness is an oversized, hardbound book on heavy paper. It is written by filmmaker Joe Carson, who made the film Dancing with Gaia. You can get it for $45 from the Ferraferia website at ferraferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. Well, dear listeners, that about does it for today. I hope you will be back with me uh, next Wednesday. I have returning to the show uh, the ever-controversial uh, David Hillman. Uh, he's going to be sharing some, uh, here I go again with that word, uh, some very controversial uh, information that he's discovered uh, about Jesus and um, some cults of the time that uh, uh, he believes Jesus was actually involved in. Uh, David translates his own Greek, uh, so he doesn't have to rely on uh, uh, Christian translations that have whitewashed so much of history. Uh, also, we'll learn more about Medea, who uh, another woman in history uh, who has been... Um, uh, you know, we've been sold a bill of goods about who she was, and uh, we don't know uh, her actual history either. Uh, she was actually uh, the mother of modern pharmacology. Uh, we will get more into uh, who she was and uh, the disinformation uh, out there about her. Uh, but you'll definitely want to tune in uh, because this is some very interesting stuff. So that will be next Wednesday. Uh, the 12th of February. I hope you'll tune in then. Uh, thank you, dear listeners. Uh, I appreciate your listener loyalty, as always. And uh, if you have any ideas uh, for guests, uh, please don't hesitate to email me uh, at karentate108 at yahoo.com. And please do check out my new website, uh, karentate.net. Uh, you will find uh, there uh, classes that I give, uh, my um, uh, 
monthly newsletter that you can sign up for and uh, lots of other information there about my books and anthologies. I hope you will go there and please take advantage of the opportunity uh, to send in a little contribution to help support my work and help me keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, I'm no longer employed full time um, and it was my day job that helped finance all of this feminist goddess oriented um, sacred feminine work and uh, it would be uh, appreciated immensely uh, if this has been a well that feeds you that uh, you show appreciation uh, if you would and uh, send in a contribution or donation which you can do from my website uh, through PayPal. All right, uh, that does it for me today. Uh, thank you so much and uh, I hope you have a good weekend. Goodbye for now.